Hello, this is Bob Groves again, and welcome to our Provost podcast series that we call Faculty in Research. Today, we're with Vlad Babich, Professor of Operations and Information Management at the McDonough School of Business here at Georgetown. Vlad earned his PhD in Operations Research from Case Western Reserve University, the Weatherhead School of Management there at Case Western. He also holds master's degrees in management science and mathematics. Professor Babich's research interests are on the interface of operations and finance, supply risk management, supply chain management, energy and sustainability, entrepreneurship, innovative operations technologies in firms, stochastic modeling and risk management. It is a mouthful. He has garnered research support from the National Science Foundation and multiple university and industry grants. And as you might expect, given the breadth of his interest, he publishes in journals across operations, research, management, and industrial engineering. He is an associate editor on journals, senior editor for production and operations management journals. Vlad, I welcome you to this little podcast. I am so thrilled that we have a chance to have this conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bob. And I would like to say that I'm honored to follow the previous speakers on this podcast. Um, I hope I'll be able to provide as much insight as they did. Well, I'm sure you will. And let me hearken back to my intro of you that you have an enormous breadth of interests, and it appears that you're doing research in multiple fields at the same time that really have different audiences. So I'm fascinated with, first of all, how did that develop this wide breadth of things that interest you? That's an excellent question. I consider myself deep down a mathematician who is looking for applications of the way of mathematical thinking, of the creative process that mathematics involves. And so in my background, I started in the math field, and I gradually explored my way around various applications. I started in the math department in my graduate school, and then I found interesting collaborations and applications of some of the stochastic models I was learning about creating in the business school. And so this is how my applications in the business school started, collaborating with my, at the time, advisors. Then I have transitioned into the engineering world. I worked at the University of Michigan for a while in the engineering school. And then I came back to the business world here looking for more applications. I think the overall theme, the idea that there is a fundamental unifying structure behind how people making decisions behind physical phenomena, behind economic, biological evolution. This is what I find attractive. And this is what I find exciting about the kind of work and applications that I'm looking for. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it all started. It's just that I'm a mathematician looking for interesting ways to apply mathematics. I'm fascinated with minds that work on the interface and bring a set of tools and perspectives to a different fields. As you described it just a second ago, you are seeking 
problems that need solution where mathematics may be part of the solution. And then to do that, it seems like you also seek out collaborators who are experts in that problem, the processes that produce the problem. So tell us a little more about seeking out collaborators and uh, especially early on in your career. How, how do you do that? Well, I wish I could take all of the credit for planning my research path for the 10 years, 20 years of my research career. I wish I could do that, but I can't. I have to give much of the credit to my decisions to serendipity, just being in many ways lucky and meeting people who uh, are working on interesting problems that I'm also interested in and finding a way of connecting, finding the interface between what I was doing and what they were doing. So back in the graduate school, I was lucky to start working with faculty in finance, faculty in operations, but it is serendipity because they were there. They joined fairly at the same time as I was exploring the opportunities. In my recent work, I'm collaborating with uh, people um, across multiple universities. So I have a project right now with a PhD student in economics at Stanford who is graduating this year. And the way we started working on that project was that during her visit to DC, she was doing summer internship here. We started talking about the novel technological blockchain that she was interested in and was doing research on. And this is a topic I was researching at the time as well. And we started working together and this has developed into a very fruitful, fruitful collaboration. I have colleagues at WHU in Germany University who are also interested in the blockchain, but the way we're thinking about the same kind of set of questions from a different perspective. We're doing behavioral experiments as opposed to just building mathematical models trying to understand how this novel technology affects the way that uh, supply chains operate. So, you know, I'm given a lot of credit to serendipity, but I think I also kind of want to convey that um, there is a system behind the lucky connections. Knowing what you're interested in, knowing what, why you're interested in this, knowing your set of strengths, and thinking how you can apply this strength in somebody else's problem, or conversely, trying to understand what is that that they do great that you can use in your own research. So viewing problems and connections from that perspective really, really helps a lot to develop these collaborations and develop the kind of joint projects that ultimately are very rewarding. So you mentioned that you spent time in an engineering school and now you're in a business school for some years. Could you comment on the, the different application cultures that are in those two environments? Tell us about that contrast between engineering schools and business schools for a person like you. The gap is not as great as one might imagine. I mean, fundamentally, we are looking at the same processes, we're looking at the same problems, and we're trying to find the best solutions for companies, how to run their production, how to run their supply chains, how to operate better, how to do things more, in more efficient, effective way. It's just that the focus is shifting somewhat, but fundamentally, it's the same set of problems. 
So the transition for me wasn't that abrupt going from the business school to engineering and then back to the business school. My research was fairly kind of stable around this uh, overall area. I find that many of the questions in the engineering context kind of more focused on the immediate applications, developing solutions, where some of the more business school questions sometimes tend to be more on the kind of broader side and asking questions, what are the economic forces that are driving human decisions here? So there is a difference, there are shades of uh, research, but overall they are looking in the same direction, trying to solve the same problems. One of the common attributes when one has his PhD or her PhD uh, immediately is to be overwhelmed with the different goals that an academic has to uh, maintain focus on. I wonder if I could ask you to, to reflect back on that decision and what were the early days of you as an assistant professor? I'll go even before I was an assistant professor, because I think your life as an academic begins in your PhD program and possibly even before that, what ultimately drives you to become an academic, I think, in my opinion, is the desire to discover new things, things for which there's no answer right now. It's the exploration, the excitement that comes with this that motivates me. When I start working on the problem, you know, this is why I spend uncountable number of hours on my research, because I find it exciting. I find the discovery process, the creative process, really hard to resist. And so this is the spark that motivated me initially to pursue the life as an academic. So it's industry is fun. Industry is great. Industry is fantastic. But nowhere but in academia, in my opinion, you can have as much freedom to pursue your interests, your passions. It's really unmatched. So I like to say that, you know, as an academic, as a professor, I have complete flexibility to do anything I want. I can work any 80 hours in the week I want to. <laughs> I don't really have a boss technically per se, in the sense that what's driving me is me, what's driving me are my interests. And, you know, it's such a, it's such a joy, it's such a pleasure to pursue the research. And, you know, I don't want to create an impression that it's all fun and games. So I'll talk about the challenges as well. Like, but ultimately what gets you through the challenges is the excitement you feel about doing the work, discovering things that have not been discovered yet. Wonderful statement. Well, that first academic position you had to teach, you had to do research, and you had to do service of various sorts. Do you remember how you learned to juggle those three balls well? I dropped a few of them before I learned how to juggle them, for sure. It is not an easy, easy task. I think having a great mentor is essential, and having multiple mentors is even better. So one of the pieces of advice I usually give to my PhD students or to junior colleagues is talk to senior faculty members, ask them the kind of questions that you're struggling with, because they have experience, they know how to do certain things well, how to juggle those multiple balls, as you asked. So I give priority in my life to research because ultimately as a junior faculty member, 
your most important criteria by which you are being evaluated is your research productivity. Teaching is extremely important, but ultimately the way that the world views you is by your research productivity. How many papers, how many books you wrote, and probably even more importantly, what difference did your research make? Did it make an impact or not? It's not about the number of books or papers. It's about how significant what you did is. As a junior faculty member, probably the single most important advice is focus on research, focus on research, focus on research. Everything else is an addition to your work as a researcher. I found very helpful being at the business school because at the business school, we try to protect our junior faculty members from service assignments. So that frees up time to do what's important for development of the young person's career, which is to do research. We try to assign teaching in such a way that it's very efficient on the time of the junior faculty member. And so again, it becomes a resource for them, extra time. Any time they can free up to dedicate to research, that ultimately is what's going to make a difference in their career. I'm interested in one of the conflicts that some people feel is between teaching and research, but then others of our colleagues have figured out a way to integrate the two. Have you done that over your career that you feel that teaching is a way to enhance your research productivity? Definitely. Well, I'll go back to my time in engineering school uh, where I was teaching a PhD course on supply chain management. Teaching PhD courses is such a tremendous opportunity for young researchers because it helps you to formulate your thinking and kind of firm up your understanding of the field while exploring the questions uh, with PhD students who are a few years away from you, but you know they'll be in your position pretty soon. So you're kind of almost working with your peers you jointly exploring things. So PhD courses are a fantastic opportunity to get your research thinking going, even while you are teaching. In fact, it's such a great opportunity. You know, in the business school, we don't have a PhD program yet. So I took every opportunity when, after I joined Georgetown to teach PhD courses at various programs. I taught several times at the MIT Center in Zaragoza in Spain. Uh, summer PhD academies, just because from research perspective, the ability to teach a PhD course, I find it quite a great opportunity to help me to think about research problems. Kind of teaching in general is the best way of learning. You're forcing yourself to think through the problem from the perspective of the person who haven't seen this problem before. And that gives you a perspective that you probably wouldn't have had otherwise. And that sharpens your focus and allows you to find what's important there and why do you want to answer that question and why is it difficult? Mm -hmm. So teaching is a great way of kind of stimulating your own thinking. I teach a course on supply chain management, and this is along the lines of my research. And so we're talking about certain things that I literally take the insights from my papers. And when we talk about why supply chains are in trouble now and what can we do to fix them and what stands in the way of doing that. So these are the kind of questions I was thinking about for a while. 
And this is great. I mean, I, I can literally use my own research papers and the projects I've done with the companies as part of my teaching. I'm a, a believer in the notion that the general public, we haven't provided insights to them about the synergies between research and education and uh, how it, uh, research is the lifeblood of teaching because it allows us to communicate the cutting edge information and, and the discoveries not yet made that uh, the next generation should focus on. I hear what you're saying. What are you working on now that you find yourself thinking about at odd moments? And uh, what's the puzzle that you find fascinating? You might have mentioned some things already, but I'd be interested in uh, just your thoughts about what you're passionate about right now. Thank you. Thank you for this question. It's a dangerous question to ask an academic because we get really excited and passionate and it's really hard to stop us once we start answering this. So I did mention the project and I find it extremely exciting right now. This is the project I'm doing with my colleagues in Germany. And this is a new topic for me. I have strengths in building theoretical models. I have done empirical research. Uh, But this is the first project that I'm doing that requires behavioral experiments set up. And so this stretches my abilities. I'm learning about the new methodology. I'm learning about the new way of doing things. So that's one reason why I find this an interesting and exciting question project. Uh, But the project is trying to understand how new technologies like blockchain can affect certain inefficiencies that exist in supply chains that we're observing right now all around us. So the shortages we are seeing, the fact that there are not enough products on the shelves, the fact that the companies are struggling to find the supplies to do the production. This is all relates in many ways to the actions that those companies are taking, to the interactions among them. This is what we are studying. We're trying to understand how providing information to those companies using the novel technology like blockchain, whether that's going to help them to do a better job managing their supply chains. What we're finding surprisingly is that that is not necessarily the case. Uh, As we provide them with more information, and by them, I mean uh, our behavioral subjects that play in the role of decision makers in supply chains, they do worse job than they are doing without having that information. So sharing information is not necessarily the best thing to do, which is contrary to the kind of common wisdom, common understanding. Nobody will say no to more information when you're making decisions. So that's kind of one exciting aspect, trying to understand what's going on, why is it like that? Why is the uh, actions become worse uh, from the systems perspective? Why is there over-ordering? Why they don't take advantage of the best information available to or Why is the best information available to them makes them worse off? Another kind of twist on the same story, we are trying to understand how long the shortages would persist once we passed the physical limitations of supply chains, right? So right now we don't have products because they are stuck in the shipping channels and the ports the physical constraints on how much you can sense with those ports. Once those constraints overcome, is this going to resolve the problem or not? So what we're finding experimentally is that even after the physical constraints are gone, the system that is already in that equilibrium, that everybody's over-ordering, there's a panic buying, 
they continue this destructive behavior for extended period of time. And trying to understand what's driving it and how we can mitigate it. I'm thinking about those questions uh, as I'm waking up, as like I'm doing my stuff. They always come back to my mind. What's going on? How can we understand this? What can we offer as a solution? So these are the kind of problems that we are working right now. I'm really excited about Mm-hmm. This is fascinating. It sounds like you're in new terrain, right? It's almost a cognitive psychological issue of how do people think through and make decisions under uncertainty and uh, the role of expectations and all sorts of mm-hmm. other things. Usually I'm thinking from the perspective of the rational decision maker. And here we are leaning on the knowledge of behavioral economics various and sociology of various biases that decision makers exhibit um, and try to combine it with the knowledge of supply chains and what the rational way of running supply chains would be and how these behavioral biases change the uh, rational actions. And sometimes behavioral biases work for the better. Ultimately, they benefit the system, whereas the rational decision making makes us all worse off in some sense, right? That's, that's the puzzle. That's the, uh, the puzzle of equilibrium is that every equilibrium is efficient. The outcomes could be highly, highly inefficient. And so sometimes behavioral bias is actually good because they take us out of the excessive rationality. This is a wonderful way to end, Professor Babbage. I'm overjoyed that we were able to have this conversation and uh, wish you the best in unraveling these really complicated puzzles that are affecting the lives of everyone on this planet. So thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about it.